I love that song. I love songs that sing about heaven, sing about the day that we will see Jesus, and just all the different expressions we get of that. So you walk in this morning, and we are, we are uh, decorated for Lent. You can see Dana's just done a beautiful job here up front. I, I walked in as she was working on these two blocks over here, and she asked me, what do you see? And I'm kind of staring at it, and I'm getting all, oh, I see a hill, and there's a cross, and I see this, and I, she says that. She says, nah, that's not it. And so... <laughs> And, she, and, then, and then she said, I, I hope that people are actually able to pay attention while you preach. So um, if you have to today in order to listen better, close your eyes. But I just, I love this. I think it really sets a beautiful mood and spirit for the season into which we have entered. And in this Lenten season, we're, we're taking the time to look at the lies that the serpent whispers into our ears, the lies that that we just, we buy into them. We don't, even, we don't even necessarily realize we've been told the lie. We just bought it. It may be something that we've been told in our culture. It may be part of our growing up experience. Whatever it is, we've heard the lie and we believe the lie and we live into the lie. We've been in a, a fun little time at our house. We, like many, are, are prepping our life for cutting the cable cord, and so we've been trying to figure out if Kim can actually access apps on TV and stuff like that, which is just a wonderful adventure. And so she's been, she's been watching a lot of these uh, different history shows that, that we kind of missed out on along the way. So we're not too long ago, we polished off the men who built America, learning about all those uh, great entrepreneurs and industrialists that basically basically built our country uh, during the Industrial uh, Revolution. And then around President's Day, we took the time to watch the, the special that was on the, the series on George Washington and realize more of what we could learn about the, the founder of our nation. Now, i got to admit to you, when I, when I watch these shows and even when I read a lot of written modern history, uh, I, I, I watch and listen with uh, some skepticism. I wonder what the agenda is. I wonder what's really true and what is just some uh, propaganda trying to get me to see the perspective of the producer or whoever's, whoever's putting out the message. But there are times that you look at things and you know that's absolutely true. I know that to be true. It's a fact. For example, we know, we know that there was a Declaration of Independence. I watch National Treasure. I know there's a Declaration of Independence and it's a beautiful document. It's a document that really forms the mindset of America. You know the words. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. And among those rights are these, the right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to the pursuit of happiness. Thomas Jefferson wrote these words, and I'm blown away when I go back and read. He was all of 33 years old when he penned this document. Three years older than Brian. Just kind of get this in your mind. This 33-year-old man sets out this document, not necessarily a legal document in our system, but a declaration. King George, we're separating, and here's why. And the things that he wrote were ideals and ideas that were grounded actually in the teachings and philosophies of another man that existed before him, a man named John Locke. John Locke wrote it a little bit differently. He was suffering under tyranny as well. And John Locke said, all people are created and given rights 
by God. Not by government, not by anybody else, by God. And he says you have the right to life, you have the right to liberty, and you have the right to property. He didn't refer to the pursuit of happiness, but to property. And if you take Locke's property, and if you take Thomas Jefferson's pursuit of happiness, and you put them both together, what he was basically saying is human beings were born and given the freedom by God to pursue opportunities. That doesn't mean they'll always work out. In fact, sometimes they will crash and burn. But you have the God-given right to try to pursue opportunity. So he starts with life. Because life, of course, is the most fundamental right of all. If you don't have life, you can't have liberty. If you don't have life, there's no pursuing happiness at all. You've got to have life. He doesn't put them in this order mistakenly. It's very important that we understand life comes first. Womb to tomb, life matters. And then he says, and in that life, you have liberty. You have such freedom. Oh, we as modern Americans, we have such a hard time grasping this great gift we've been given, the gift of liberty. We just don't, for years and years, for centuries and millennia, people sat under the rule of dictators and kings who told them the way they would live and what they would do. They were told what they would do with their lives. And we are born into America, and we have this wide-open slate of freedom. We, of course, have common laws that rule us. You say, well, I don't have freedom. That sign out there says 45 miles an hour. Well, we need to figure out a way to enjoy our freedoms collectively, not just do whatever we want all the time. But we have liberty given to us by God. And then Jefferson tells us we have the right to the pursuit of happiness. Locke, the right to property, both together. The right to pursue opportunity. And for Americans... We love being happy. Happy. Happy is, our, happy is our prime goal. In fact, you know, you talk to a parent, and in modern parenting, you know what the number one goal is? I want my kid to be happy. I want my kid to enjoy everything. So we're asking five-year-olds, honey, what do you want? And, and, they're, and they're dictating everything about what the family does never, because we want our kid to be happy. We care so much about happiness. We care about pursuing happiness. And you know what? In the process, we've really distorted what Jefferson and Locke were talking about because they weren't talking about just being happy. They were talking about the right to pursue opportunity. And sometimes those opportunities don't work out, but you have the right to do it. But we've taken this modern translation and said, every American should be happy. Happiness is my right. Happiness is my divine right. And it slides over into then one of our theological lies. One of the ways that that we misunderstand God's goal for our lives. Because what do we say? As an American, I have the right to be happy. And as a Christian, I wholeheartedly believe God wants me to be happy. That's that's what life is all about. God exists in heaven to make sure that his little kid down here gets all the happiness he wants. Life is all about happy. I'm telling you, search the scriptures, and you are going to have a tough time finding verses that defend the idea that God exists to make you happy. 
that God's prime goal in life for you is that you be happy. You might say, well, what about Psalm 37.4? Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. I'll tell you what, delighting is a far cry from happiness. I can delight and not necessarily be happy. God has higher goals, higher aspirations, higher dreams for his children that they simply be happy. I've had people use this idea, God wants me to be happy to actually defend lives of sin. Sat across from people who were in the middle of an affair with another person and saying, I'm leaving my spouse, I'm leaving my kids because I believe God would want me to be happy. And I can't imagine being happy in my current life. I'd only be happy if I pursue that other person. And I know God wants my happiness, so I'm leaving. I've had people defend aberrant sexual behavior, behavior that is forbidden in the Bible. Why? Well, because God would want me to be happy, wouldn't he? Time and time again, we use this happiness idea as if somehow that justifies any and every behavior. God would want me to be happy. He'd be saying to his little spiritual five-year-old, do whatever you want, have whatever you want, eat all the candy you want, cocoa puffs, go nuts. I just want you to be happy. Nowhere in the Bible will you find that God's goal for your life is happiness. Now, I'm going to be honest with you today. This is not the way to fill a room. You don't preach a sermon like this and buy a former NBA stadium and say, let's fill this thing with 30,000 people. But we're talking about truth. We're not talking about ear tickling. We're not talking about simply reinforcing the lie that the serpent is whispering in your ear. We're talking about truth. So let's look at the Bible. Let's go to the book of Matthew. Let's go, let's go to the life of Jesus. We're told Jesus in John 3.16 is the only begotten son of the father. Father, son. This father, he loves his son and he loves the world. And so we come to the end of the life of Jesus and he's in the garden. We know the story. We know he's hours away from dying for our sins, the sins of the whole world. And he is on the ground in the garden and he is in agony. He is in such agony that drops of blood pour from his forehead and he's crying out to the Father. He's, he's praying to the Father. These are the words found in Scripture. My Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. I'm a father of three. I would rather take pain any day than watch them go through even the slightest amount of pain. And it's hard to imagine the Father in heaven not saying, I'll tell you what, you gotta die. Let's make it quick and easy. Let's make it as painless as possible. But we know from what unfolded that basically what the Father said was, no, no. Your death has to happen this way. In this moment, was God's prime objective for his son, his happiness? I don't know about you, but it doesn't sound very happy to me. A little earlier, Jesus has been called into ministry. He's been baptized by John the Baptist. People are wanting to follow him, and someone says, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. 
And Jesus says to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Now I'm thinking, Jesus just got ordained. He's going to be a pretty good pastor. He's, he's going to preach some memorable sermons. And I'm thinking his father is thinking, hey, if I got to send my, my kid to that earth, to that cruddy place instead of heaven, I'm at least going to buy him a Galilean villa. I'm going to give him a nice $5.4 million mansion sitting. We'll, we'll position it right there where he preached that sermon on the mount, kind of as a, a memorial to that. That was a killer sermon, wasn't it? It was amazing. We'll, we'll plant him there. But what, is it, what does Jesus say? I, I don't even have a place to lay my head. If I want to sleep in a comfortable place, i got to bum a room from a friend. Otherwise, I'm out under the stars, don't even have a sleeping bag or a pillow. Doesn't sound very happy, does it? You keep thinking you should get more, you should have more. Wouldn't God want me to be happy? How happy did he want his son? Back up a little bit more. Back up a little bit more, you have Jesus at his baptism. And the Bible uses these words. The Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. The Spirit of God led Jesus into a desolate, harsh place for the sake of temptation. Does that sound like, I just want my kid to be happy? Back up a little bit more. You have the birth of Jesus, and of course, Herod comes after him. He wants to kill him. The family heads off to Egypt. They come back home. They decide they can't stay in Bethlehem or around Jerusalem, so they head off to Nazareth. We looked at this not too long ago at Christmas time. Nazareth. This is a, this is a low-level town. The people don't even live in homes. Archaeologists have discovered they lived in caves, about 60 people. It was, it was a poor, poor town. And not only that, his dad is a carpenter. Now you're thinking, what's wrong with being a carpenter? I got to tell you as a kid. So I grew up in North Tonawanda. We weren't, we were, we weren't lower middle class. We were kind of like upper lower class. Okay, it was, it, was, it was a tough place to live. And my dad, he barely made 10 bucks an hour. And I remember he'd talk about what I should do when I grow up. And he said, you, you know what you should do? You need to become an electrician or a carpenter. Those guys make the big bucks. Now, I know, some of your electricians and carpenters are like, no, we don't. But that's what my dad thought, right? My dad was like, do you know that an electrician or a carpenter can make like 50,000 bucks a year? To me, he just said $5 million. I mean, that was like, are you kidding me? That's big money. So you read this through my little, my little lower-class blue-collar eyes, and I'm thinking, what's wrong with being a carpenter? In Nazareth, it was the bottom of the barrel. Do you not think that if God was sending his son into the world, he would not say, all right, first of all, we're going to get him into a nice house. We're going to get him into a good family, one that can at least read and write, one that has connections to get him into the best schools. I want my kid to have all the advantages he gave his son all the disadvantages. Was it his highest goal that his son be happy? You know the story, Luke 2. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Are you kidding me, really? God had thousands of years to make reservations. Really? Really? 
We can't even be born in an inn. God just wants me to be happy. I'm not convinced that God's highest priority for your life is that he wants you to be happy. I believe God wants you to live like Jesus. You say, well, does that mean I have to sell my house and sleep outside with no pillow? You know, I think normally I'd say, of course, that's not what it's saying. But you know what? Maybe that is what it's saying. Maybe that is what it's saying. Maybe what it's saying is that we stop actually believing that our creature comforts bring us happiness. Maybe it is saying that if we'd live more like Jesus, we'd actually start seeing the fulfillment we're looking for instead of constantly searching for something that we're never finding. God does not care about your happiness. He cares about your holiness. He wants you to live like Jesus. So let's go to another story in the Bible. You go back into the Old Testament. You know the story of a man named Job. Job was doing pretty well in life. He lives in a land named Uz. I love that. I grew up in North Tonawanda. Hard to spell. Uz. Nice and easy for the kids. We live in Uz. 60410. Easy. So he's a blameless and upright. One who feared God and turned away from evil. This man, he's morally beautiful says he has seven sons, three daughters, 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, 500 female donkeys, and many servants. He's the greatest of all the people of the East. This guy is triple blessed. He is, he is doing really, really, really well. I think most of us, when we look at this part of Job, we think that's what God wants for all of his kids, up and to the right all the time. And of course, we know that there's this meeting that happens in heaven, and the accuser comes to talk to God the Father. And for some reason, God the Father decides he's in the mood to flick the accuser's ear. You know, he's just going to have a little fun with him. I don't know why. He says, Look down on earth. Have you checked out us lately? Have you looked at my servant Job? Look at this guy. Righteous, upright, living perfectly, just. This, this is a guy that would follow me to the end. And Satan, Satan does his whisper, yeah, sure, sure. Of course he fears you. You give him every reason to fear you. You've made him happy, happy, happy. Everything in his life is beautiful. He says, you put a big old hedge around him. You protect him. Of course, he's, of course he says, you're great. You, you've been great to him. And we know what God says. Fine, I'm ripping out the hedge. Go crazy. Have at it. Do anything you want, but take his life. Anything you want, but take his life. And, and I'll tell you what, in one day, his life comes to complete ruin. You think this past week the stock market was tough? His life comes to complete ruin. Business gone, family gone, reputation gone, disease, health gone. We know that he's sitting with sores. He's taking a piece of a pot and he's scraping the sores. I mean, he's in miserable shape. His wife comes to him and says, how in the world can you continue to serve God? Just curse him and die. Look what God's done to us. Look at this. It says, and Job arose and tore his robe and shaved his head and fell on the ground and he worshiped. He said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all of this, Job did not sin or charge God with any wrongdoing. 
He was able to love God when things were great, and he was able to love God when things were lousy. Later in the book, he gives this beautiful perspective. He says, he knows the way that I take, and when he has tried me, when he has refined me, I'm going to be like the purest of gold. I think sometimes that when problems come into our lives, we're afraid that non-believers will look at us and, we, and think, well, my goodness, your God really isn't worth anything. Wouldn't, wouldn't the God of heaven protect you? Wouldn't the God of heaven give you good things? And instead, we're going through pain and we're going through suffering, and we think they question, what kind of God could we be worshiping? Kind of like Job's wife, what kind of God is this if you're going through that kind of pain and loss? This past week, I got to meet with two of my friends from a group that I was a part of for two years in Indiana. We met on up in Schaumburg, and um, the one lady, she's got a really great life. 60 years old, she's been married for almost 40, year old, 40 years to her husband. They have, they've, been, they've been incredibly financially prosperous. Uh, beautiful house in Barrington that they just sold, and now they're, now they're living instead at their lake house in Gen Lake Geneva. I mean, they, they have got the life going. It's just, it's amazing the things that they have. But they not only have great things, they, they have a great family, great family, four kids who love God and are following him, and every one of those kids is doing really, really, really well. Well, it was a little after Christmas, and I got Tammy's Christmas card. I got to show it to you. So this is Tammy's Christmas card. Yeah, oh, I know. This is Hallmark moment right here. So the baby was literally just born a couple of days before Christmas, so she waited and sent out her card late so that she could do this beautiful image of Jesus in the manger, Mary Joseph, the angel. She said the angel actually wanted to be Mary until she found out she had wings, and she was all into it then. And so their family takes this picture Christmas Eve, and then they take off the costumes, and they head off to church where they've gone to church all of their family's life to celebrate the birth of Jesus. And I saw her, and the first thing that came out of my mouth was like, that card, Tammy, my word, it's a Hallmark card, it's beautiful, it's wonderful. And I have to wonder, I truly have to wonder, how many of Tammy's friends got that card and said, ugh must be nice to have a perfect life. Wouldn't I love it if all my grandkids actually wanted to be in the room with me, let alone this? Wouldn't it be fantastic if my family actually enjoyed being together at Christmas instead of wanting to just go to Denny's and get away from me? I have a feeling that there were people that received this card and they went, must be nice. And there was actually jealousy that rose up in them because their life was not like that. But when we have moments like Job, people go, I can relate to that life. That's my life. And you're handling your Job moments way better than I handle my Job moments. Somehow you're still able to love God. Somehow you're still able to worship. Somehow you're still able to see that there is good in this world, and I don't get it. You see, I think when it comes down to it, God cares a lot less about our happiness than that we look like Jesus to people. That when people see us going through our suffering, 
We look like Jesus. And they say, I can relate to that. And I want that. I want that. One more set of stories. Acts chapter 2. That's Acts chapter 1, actually. Jesus ascends to heaven. The disciples are staring. Angels appear. Hey, guys, get, get your eyes on the ground. Let's go to the Jerusalem. Wait, something great's coming. Acts 2. Church of Jesus Christ is formed. Holy Spirit, flames of fire. It's amazing. It's growing. It's bursting. Things are just, things are happening the way they're supposed to happen. They are spirit-filled. Just a couple chapters later, there's already, there's already a struggle because they've grown so fast, their systems are breaking, and one of the systems they had was to take care of widows, and, and, and it wasn't being done well, and there's complaining going on and kind of a grumble, and the apostles say, we got to get some help, and so they choose seven men to be deacons of the church, people who deacons, to deek literally means to just serve, they're serving people, helping people, administering, administering this food program. Chapter 7 comes, and in chapter 7, and one of those deacons, Stephen, he's deaking well, but he's also, he's learning how to preach really well. And he preaches a beautiful, fiery message. It just, it's the kind of message that, you know, just as I am should play, and thousands flow down the aisles. I mean, this is, it's an amazing message. And they come to the end of the message. And when they do, it says, the people who were listening were enraged, and they're, they're grinding their teeth. I've never had people grind teeth at a message. This is, you know, they're grinding their teeth, and they're furious at what they've heard. And they, and they start to shout, and they go after him, and they pull him out, and they take him to the edge of the city, and they stone him to death, and he's being stoned to death. Here he is. It says, by the way, Saul is standing there. Saul, who becomes Paul, he's the coat check guy at the stoning of Stephen, it says, as he was stoning, being stoned, Stephen cries out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. He crawls, falls to his knees and cries out, Lord, don't hold this sin against them. And then it says he dies. He falls asleep. I suspect that in the deacon job description, one of the things they did not put is, you might die. You might die for loving Jesus. It says Saul approved the execution and he started a persecution against the church that was intense. By chapter 12, you have Herod realizing that this pleases the Jewish leaders and so he goes and takes James, the brother of John, and he kills him. And when he sees the pleasure from that, he arrests Peter and he's about to do the same to him. These are the people that walked to the face of the earth with Jesus. Do you not think, for all they'd been through, that now they've arrived at the point in their ministry that Jesus says it's time for them to experience some happiness? You know what we know from the Bible and from church history? All but one of the apostles dies a natural death. Did I say that right? the other way around. Everyone is executed except one. One lives to, his, to the end of his life. And that's John who dies in exile on the island of Patmos. Not exactly, you know, club, med, club medding it to the end. Every one of them dies a painful execution for the cause of Jesus. But God just wants me to be happy, doesn't he? Do you not think the disciples deserved a, more, a little more happiness than us? Think about it. The apostles of Jesus. So the coat check guy, 
who ultimately dies as a martyr. Here's what he says. Whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have been so happy. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Christ and that I may know the power of his resurrection, and that I may share in his suffering, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection of the dead. What does he say? God's greatest goal in life for every believer is that they be happy. God's goal for us is that we join Jesus in his sufferings, that we become like him in his death. It was Jesus himself who said to someone, you want to come after me? You want to be my disciple? You get to deny yourself, you get to take up your cross, and you get to follow me. Here's the benefits package. You don't get a mansion You don't get happy, happy, happy. You get to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. Whoever will lose his life for my sake will find it. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world, if he is supremely happy and yet forfeits his soul? Or what can you give in return for a man's soul? God wants us to be like Jesus. This is, this is what life is all about. God, God wants us to live like Jesus. God wants us to look like Jesus. And God wants us to be like Jesus. There is no other goal. There is no other goal. God doesn't sit in heaven saying, how can I make my kids happy today? God sits in heaven saying, how will my kids look more like my son today? And what will help them look more like my son today? That the lie of the, of the serpent being whispered in our ears is God wants you to be happy. The truth of Scripture is God wants you to be holy. And he's willing to let us go through whatever path it takes in order to get us there. So we're going to go to communion. And in communion, no, go back. I'm sorry, Sherry. I, you're, you're incredibly efficient, but go back. <clears throat> In John chapter 6, Jesus is talking about being the bread of life. And it is a hard message for the people to understand. They just don't get it. And we come back, come down to the end of the chapter to a verse that, that continually blows me away. This is Jesus. You know, you, you always kind of think that I'm going to finally find the church and the pastor that are just, they're, they're the best and I'll never leave. This, this is the one, right? I think there's a pretty good chance that if Jesus was your pastor, you have the best pastor that ever existed. You know? You're not going to do better. 
after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It doesn't say a bunch of the seekers said, that's tough stuff. At this point, many of his disciples said, I'm done. I'm through here. This is nuts, and he's nuts. Jesus turns to the 12, and he says, so, you're going to walk away too? I love Peter's response, because he basically says, where will we find a better church? <laughs> he says, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. We have no other option, and we think you're a pretty good option. I want you to think about your physical walk to communion today. You've heard these words. This is truth. This is truth. God's highest objection, object, objective is not your happiness. God's highest objective is your holiness. God's highest objective is that you look more like Jesus. And today, as you walk toward communion, you are in effect saying, even though I know that truth, I want to continue to follow you. Which may mean some of you need to say, I'm not leaving my seat. Because I'm not just going to go through the motions of bread and cup. I either believe what Jesus said, or it's time to walk away. Now, let me say this. If you determine that, it is not that I no longer have hope for you, but I have ho great hope in God. He's going to hound you. He is not going to leave you alone. He's going to keep looking and looking and searching and searching and doing everything he can to bring you back safely home to him. But today we have to decide. This isn't just going through motions. This isn't just crackers and juice time. This is, I'm a follower, and I follow Jesus for who he says he is, not for the little statue that I have made to say this is Jesus to me. Jesus to me is irrelevant. Jesus is Jesus. And Jesus says, be like me, look like me, live like me. Let's go to communion. want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. And I want to become like him in his death. So as somehow to attain the resurrection from the dead. So do I. So do I, Paul. So do I. I hope you do too. You know, if you find yourself happy this week, it's not a sin. Okay? Don't want to give us the impression here that we become kind of somber, never smiling types. It's just not the highest objective.
I hope throughout the week you'll hear the words. I want to know Christ. I want to know the power of his resurrection. I want to know the fellowship of his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death. And that you'll be able to say, I really do. I really do. I want to be like Jesus, look like Jesus, and live like Jesus. Let's have a seat. <clears throat> Our servers are coming to receive the offering. You got the links this morning at 7 o'clock. And uh, one of the things, the first one, if you open that, that'll take you to uh, <clears throat> the YouVersion app, which gives you the sermon notes. And at the very bottom of that, you'll find the three questions that we want you to dwell on during the week. So we have a question that you do on Monday and again on Tuesday, Wednesday and again on Thursday, Friday and again on Saturday, and we'll also email that to you. So I hope you find those reflective questions helpful during this season of, of Lent where we're, when we're focusing even more intensely on our relationship with Jesus. What, what else is going on, Brian? Well, uh, one big correction that I need to make that I apparently, I think <clears throat> someone told me I lied. I didn't lie, I just didn't have full understanding. Uh, Black Light Glow Night, next Saturday, you don't have to sign up. A bunch of people apparently went to go sign up, and they're like, uh, there's no link to sign up. So you don't have to. You can just show up between 6 and 8 p.m. next Saturday night for an awesome time of random glow activities and food and all kinds it's of It's one fun. of those cases. Would you rather be a liar or be ignorant? <laughs> Ignorance better, I guess. Good. All right. Bus Brian. <laughs> Thanks, man. All right. Uh, anyway, yeah. So we have that going on next Saturday. On the 22nd, we have our day camp auditions. So if you are 18 or over and you would like to to try your shot at working in the um, day camp world, uh, come and try out for one of those roles. I think that's going to be a really neat uh, yeah. chance to see some new people get into to some pretty fun roles. And again, they're not all like all week long. Some of those roles are only for a day or for a, a part of a day. Um, so if you're, you know, even if stage fright is a thing, come try it out. You never know what might work out for you. Uh, on that same day, on the 22nd, and as well uh, as on the Wednesday before that, uh, the 18th, both groups are going to be participating in our annual March Mad Mess event. Oh. Um, so it, it's our, our day to go kind of crazy and, and get super extra messy. Uh, so that's Refuge on the 18th and then Revive on the 22nd. Um, that's leading right into spring break. So during spring break, we won't meet on the, the Wednesday of spring break or the Sunday after. So the second Sunday of spring break, we won't be meeting. Uh, but I'm really looking forward to that because we're going to be kind of leading into that with a series in both groups, um, kind of different approaches, but looking at the mess that sin makes in our lives. Mm. So uh, leading into you, the absolute you do, necessity. You do messy and gross so well. Oh, I yeah. love it. No, I really do. Please. And if you, if, you, if you don't yet, you've got to follow the student's Instagram uh, because inevitably, when you're doing something gross or messy, those videos get posted. <laughs> and it's just fun to see this sixth grader, you know, turning green while you're making them eat something they've never eaten before or whatever. Yeah. It's just, and it's parents, fun to follow. And the parents' face is turning red when they <laughs> yeah. get into the car and they're covered in chocolate. Yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> a lot of, just a lot of fun. I love it. It's really great. Um, I want to tell you, we, we're moving into a new season of groups, actually starting today. And if you go to, go to the website and you look at the group link, you'll be amazed at the number of opportunities for groups that we have this spring on many different days, guy group, girl groups, as well as couple groups. And we've got, we've got them all and just a, a lot of really great topics. So take advantage of this final burst of, of learning that'll take place from March on through Easter. Um, really, really good, really good topics. So 
Uh, what, what are you doing this spring in groups? For, well, uh, what one are you part of? Am I a part yeah, of or yeah, am I leading? Yeah. Okay, I'm a part of, um, remind me, what's the name? It's changed. Phase two. Phase two. It's changed <clears throat> names a couple times, but it's we've been in it for so long. Uh, so I'm in phase two on Monday nights with a bunch of couples. It's, that's awesome. I uh, got to go to volleyball on Friday night. That yeah. Was, that was a lot of fun, even yeah. though my legs are still paying for it. Uh, basketball on Saturdays. Got our student Bible study still rock and rolling on Tuesdays. Yeah. So yeah. So you, you've got you've got all kinds, really all kinds of different experiences going. Yeah. Peers as well as students, and then and then just fun. So it's really really good. We're offering a couple of uh, new opportunities during this season, and they're all they all have to do with helping those that either are fairly new to the church, or maybe you've been here for a while, but you're still feeling like you're you've got your nose pressed against the glass and you're on the outside looking in. So we're calling them we're calling them first step groups. And um, the first one I want to let you know about was, uh, it's called Step In. I don't have my clicker with me, sure, thanks. Um, Step In, and, th- and this is just, this is getting to know Southfield and getting to know more about the basics of spirituality. So uh, that starts on March 8th, next Sunday. And uh, if, if, that, if that is interesting to you, you know, just, you're trying to figure out a little bit more about how this church works, what it's all about, as well as you've, you've looked at other people and you're like, they, they seem to have something going on in their spiritual life that I don't, or I'm trying to understand, you know, there are words you use and that, that I'm, that I'm just not quite grasping yet. This would be a great group for you. Uh, the second one starts two days after that on March 10th, and we're calling that Step Up. And Step Up is the opportunity to learn about how are you gifted, how has God wired you uh, to use your fit in order to get involved in life in his kingdom work. So, and then we'll be talking about other areas of, of engagement as well that just, you know, we, we very much believe in the next step concept. You, you are on a step right now, and it's time to take the next and the next and the next. So in, in this case, we're talking first steps, first steps in, first steps into life and community uh, here at Southfield. So either of those are helpful to you. Uh, make sure you get signed up for them. And then, and then we have one that's not a group. It's just an opportunity every Sunday, and we're calling that step out. And step out is, you've not been here very long, and we've not yet met. And so you're going to actually step out of your chair at the end of the service. I'll be standing at the table down here. Come on up front, introduce yourself. Again, like I told you last week, it, it, it just, it really helps a lot if you come up and say, hi, my name is, uh, and this is, uh, you know, use your name, uh, is a, is a line. But in other words, let me know who you are. I want to get to know your name. I think, I think knowing names is just a, it's, it's a fundamental uh, part of community. How can we, how can we be united in community if we don't know each other's names? So I'll probably ask you if I can take your picture because I'm going ahead and putting those names with it and staring at them so that I can, so that I can get names down. So you can, you can help my, my very weak brain because as you hear me on Sunday, you know, I'm not perfect, believe it or not. So anyway, uh, it's really helpful to do that. So end of the service, step out, come up, say hi. Why don't you do this right now? Stand up. Let's stand up. And sing a song that really matches the spirit of the season, starts turning our eyes uh, toward the walk to the cross and beyond.